It's the season of Advent, the time of anticipation for the birth of our Savior. Join us as we celebrate God's ultimate gift, His only Son, Jesus. For more information, visit us online at lifepointaz.com. We are in the book of Isaiah this morning, so if you brought a Bible, you can open it to Isaiah chapter 11. If you didn't, well, you know there's one underneath the seat in front of you, and if you don't have one at home, take it. That's our gift to you. Um, Opening a Bible's fun. We encourage it here at church, and even when you're at home, if you're so brave. Isaiah 11, verse 1 through 10. We're in this season called Advent, which means anticipation, to anxiously wait for something, right? And so we are anxiously awaiting the celebration day of the birth of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And so as we're in this season, we're going to be going through the book of Isaiah, a prophet who spoke more than any of the other prophets on the coming Messiah, and we're going to see this Old Testament prophet, 700 years before Christ was born, what did he have to say? Did he get it right? Did he know what he was talking about? Or did he miss it? Or did somehow God speak through this man in such a profound and mighty way that he was speaking of truths that I'm not even certain he fully comprehended. That's what I think. I believe Isaiah was writing on the Messiah, the one to come, the promised son of God, and he was writing things that I think for him, he was even going, how? How is this possible? He didn't know his name. Last week, he gave him four different names. What were the names? Remember those? Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Heavenly Father, Prince of Peace. He didn't know his name would be Jesus, but he knew that there would be a weight of glory upon him. He knew that there would be a significance to the birth, that there would be a physical man that would save them, but yet would be more than just a man. And so in Isaiah 11, we pick up the story as he's speaking to the people of Israel, as he's prophesying of the one to come, as he's calling people to repentance and to remember their first love, Yahweh. This is a story. Isaiah 11, verse 1. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and a fear of the Lord. He will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt, and faithfulness a sash around his waist. The wolf will live with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf, the lion, and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear. When I first read that, I thought it said the cow will feed the bear, which was way off. The cow will feed with the bear. Their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den, and the young child will put its hand into the viper's nests. And they will neither harm nor destroy on my holy mountain. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Verse 10. In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him, and his resting place 
will be glorious. This is the prophecy and the word of the Lord. Isaiah is prophesying about a king. He's prophesying about a savior to come for his people. He's speaking to the Israelite people. And he's saying, one is coming who will be like this. So this morning as we go through this, there's three main points of the king he's prophesying. He tells us of the wisdom of the king. He tells us of the justice of the king and the king's identity. The very identity of the king. What kind of king will he be? And he nails it. He just spot on. But what I want you to see here and what is so fascinating is imagine yourself, put yourself in the shoes of the Jewish people at that time and what they were listening to and hoping for. As this morning we look at the difference between man's wisdom and the wisdom of the Lord. So the king's justice. Let's look at the justice of this one who will come. In verse 4 it says, With righteousness he will judge the needy, and with justice he will give decisions for the poor on earth. Now at first light, those two seem a little bit off. Why is he going to judge the needy? Like that seems mean. But the English doesn't convey it properly. What it actually is saying is he will stand and be just for the needy. He will stand in the gap for those who are poor, for those who are looked down upon. He will be the equalizer. He will make the path straight for them. In a societies where they are treated as less than, where they are treated like animals and not people, Christ will come and he will love the poor. He will identify with the poor and he will make the path straight. And then it says, uh, he will make decisions. With justice, he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. Again, it's not saying he will speak for them, right? That he will physically be their answers to questions. What it's saying is that he will stand in their place and exercise his power. That he is the great equalizer. That right now on this earth, the wealthy have a certain power and the poor have a certain lack of power. And Christ says, I will come and I will equalize that. I will speak on their behalf as if they will let me speak on their behalf. So this is the justice of the king, that he will come in in a poor environment, love the poor, speak to the poor, and lift up the poor. Now what's really fascinating is Isaiah, I don't think, fully understood the depths of how he would identify with the poor. Right? I mean, he's still a king. Isaiah is a prophet still expecting a king to come and reign, to shut the mouth of the lion and the predators, and that they would live peacefully amongst one another, that the evil will be shut down by the whisper of his lips. And yet we know from Scripture that Mary and Joseph were so poor that when they went to the temple to have him circumcised, their offering was two birds. So your offering in that time was based on your income. So if you were to give cows or livestock of any kind, it would have meant you were very wealthy. If you gave two birds, two birds was what the poorest of the poor would give. And so Jesus didn't just come into a castle born of even, not just royalty, he he wasn't even born of like middle income families. He was born in the poverty and he lived with people in poverty. He loved people with poverty and he gave identity and justice to people in poverty. Now this is cool, and this is, as I was preaching second service, I felt like the Holy Spirit gave this to me, but we live in a very comfortable country. That's no, that's no secret. 
We're considered the top 3% of the world, the 300 million people who live here. Even those who are poor or struggling here are still in the top 3% of the world. And so when we look at a message like this, when we look at a Savior who comforts the poor, who identifies with the needy, it can sometimes be difficult for us. And what happens is we begin to put Jesus in our box and we begin to be like, oh, I get it, I'm poor. I don't have a house bigger than 2,000 square feet. I don't have a job where I make this much money. I don't drive a car that's always reliable. I don't do this, I don't do this, I don't do this. I'm poor. I must be the one that Jesus is identifying with here. Let me tell you this. With few exceptions in this room, if you were born here and raised here in America, you are not the needy and the poor. Imagine another level. Imagine another level so far down from where you're at that you would look and take your situation back in a heartbeat because you had a redefined perspective on what poverty is. And Jesus said, it is for you that I will come and I will be the great equalizer. You see, because it is for you that you recognize your need for a Savior, for those who are wealthy, for those who are in the middle, they feel that they are so close to being able to make it on their own. The idea of humbling their will and their dreams to a Savior, to God Almighty, is just a little too far-fetched. It's really hard to grab onto. It means, among other things, he's made it a priority that we be concerned with those in poverty. That you and I, not just at Christmas, but every day, every month of the year, I am concerned with those in poverty. As I went, been in prayer about this, the season of fasting we do every January, where it's fast pray, you know, we've done fast pray give, fast pray worship, fast pray go. This year, it is fast pray serve as we spend the year focused on actionable service. It's one of the reasons why Pastor Blake started the Clean Up Copper Basin on Mondays, come down. We've had two to three people usually show up. I'm telling you, until there is a heart in you that yearns to serve and love the poor the way Jesus did, it will be tough for you to identify with the person of Jesus. Because You can't just identify with his morals or his his ethics. You can't just identify with the way he was socially proactive. You must understand that his heart came with a genuine love for his sons and daughters who have nothing but brokenness and darkness. Last week, he was a light that pierced the darkness. This week, he is a deep root. I'm going to talk about that. That gets fun. So that is the justice of the king. Secondly, we look at the king's wisdom. Look at the top verse. It says, the spirit of the Lord will rest on this messianic king, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and might. Now, if you are somebody who is oppressed, if we are a people who is oppressed and we have a promised savior coming, which word in what I just read are you going to focus on? Which word? What do you think? You can yell it out. We're doing open venue here today. Might. Might. You see, if I'm oppressed, I want a savior. That's great. He's going to be smart and he's going to be kind. 
but I need a guy who's going to be strong. So when Isaiah says he's going to come with wisdom and with might, I'm like, yeah, yeah, I heard everything else, but you said might, right? Like he's going to be big like Samson. He's going to come in and tear apart the armies of Rome and all of our oppressors in Babylon, right? Rome wasn't even around yet, what am I saying? But he's going to tear apart all of these people who oppress us. And so this is the same thing that the Israelite people did. That when Christ was born as a child, they forgot that part. Remember, a child shall lead them. They said, where is the might? Yahweh, Yahweh's Messiah will come in might and wisdom. But he doesn't come in that kind of might. Instead, he comes with the wisdom that is beyond the wisdom of man. It says he will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears. This is such a cool sentence. Because how often do we as humans decide, make decisions based off of what we see or what we hear? Or what we smell? Anybody ever been to a mall and the Cinnabon's there? Right? They built their entire model off of you walking by and smelling their half-baked muffins. And you know what happens? You walk by and you just all of a sudden you're like, I should probably get a Cinnabon. You know, it's like it's eight in the evening. Why would you do that? It's important. You haven't had dinner yet. That can be my dinner. And you've made a decision now. (laughs) Jesus will not judge by what he sees alone. He will not judge by what he hears alone. There is a deeper understanding. Most of the foolish choices we make are because we judged on appearance or what we've heard. I know you married who you married because you thought they were hot. (laughs) Nobody was like, meh, all right. And now look, you're stuck. And that's that's the beauty of marriage. Now you're stuck. I'm not a good marriage counselor, so don't come to me for that. (laughs) This is wisdom. This is wisdom. It means Christ would see beyond the temporal. He would see beyond those who were trying to bend his ear. And how many times do we see that in the New Testament? How many times do people come up to try to bend the ear of Christ, to try to get in his good graces? The rich young ruler... The guy was probably famous, he was cool, good looking, lots of friends. He's like, hey Jesus, I want to be a disciple. What's it take? I'm going to hang with Peter and Matt. Yeah. Jesus like, oh cool, sell all your possessions, everything. And the Bible says he turns away very sad because he was super rich, yo. That's the, that's the ASV version. <laughs> he turns away sad because Christ saw right past what was presented, what he heard, which was I want to be your disciple, and he knew the heart of the man. So you don't want to be my disciple. It's incredible prophecy about a Messiah. That he would not be fooled just by what is put before his eyes or his ears. That he would have a greater depth of understanding. That he would have the light and the, and the wisdom of the Father inside of a humanly body. Everything Jesus does turns the wisdom of the world on its head. Let me give you a couple of examples in the Christmas story here. Ready? First one is this. The way God brings Jesus into the world and how salvation works is a complete paradigm shift compared to how we believe uh, wisdom should work in this world. Does that make sense? So let's look at this. If you have goals for the coming year, you should storyboard them. If you ever look at the list, I don't know if you ever see those things uh, on the internet that say, here's 10 things rich and smart people do, and I look at them and I'm like, oh, great, I do none of them. That explains a lot. But the point is, part of that is, in every single one of those lists, that they storyboard and write down their goals. But they don't just write down their goals. They don't just write, you know, be a millionaire by 30. 
I missed that one. Uh, have a house in Maui. Uh, have, re- read 15 books this year, right? Make three new friends. One of them needs to be a BFF. They don't just write down their goals. They write down the actions needed to attain their goals. Have you ever done that? See, for so long, you're like, oh, I've just been writing them down. That's why you fail every year. You need to write down the actions needed to get to that goal. And so underneath the storyboard, underneath your goal number one, you would begin to write down the sacrifices you need to make with time and money and expenses and relationships and say, these need to be done, and I believe if these happen, I could attain this goal this year. So let's just take a look at Christ. So that's the wisdom of the world. That's what the most successful, wealthiest, uh, popular people in the world do. They have these goals and they show how they're going to attain them. Let's put that same light on Jesus' life. So let's look at Jesus' goals. I'd say, um, based off of how things have gone so far for him, uh, I want to be so successful that 2,000 years from now, virtually everybody in the world knows my name. Okay, he's done that. So uh, I would like a quarter of all people in the world uh, 2,000 years from now to center their entire lives on me and my teaching. All right, that's pretty uh, lofty, but I got it. So he's sitting there talking with the Father. Thirdly, I'd like my teaching to be seen 2,000 years from now as the single most important writings in history. Okay, that's intense, Jesus. How are we going to storyboard this? How are we going to accomplish this? All right, well, I'm going to need to be born. Okay, that makes sense. You've got to be born into the world. And then I want to stay in the smallest city as possible. I want to have no influence and no money. I want to be born to a mother out of wedlock, so there is a stipulation on me as being a child who is unworthy and uh, uh, thrown away. I want to be one who is disliked by everybody who knows me, and then I really never want to become popular or have friends with all of the wealthy political people. I more or less want to stay with the poor, and then right when my ministry is really starting to surge, I mean thousands are gathering around to hear me, I want to die naked on a cross. You might want to rethink your storyboard, Jesus. That sounds awful. No one's going to know your name in two years, let alone 2,000 years. You're going to be nothing. You see the world's wisdom and God's wisdom? I want to make sure this is clear. Because at this time of year especially, with the presence and the marketing and all of the consumerism, as we become so inward-focused... And we just begin to feel so bad for ourselves and where we're at and our lot in life. I want to remind you of who Jesus is and what he did. That the wisdom of God is infinitely more powerful, smart, and worthy of your time than the wisdom of the world. Do we use the wisdom of the world? 100%. If I want to set a goal to read 20 books this year, I better storyboard it. I better learn how to sacrifice my time. But if I want to set a goal of serving the poor and loving the poor, if all I do is write down on a storyboard what needs to happen, but I don't include the Holy Spirit and I don't include the power of Christ in my life in that, I am going to miss out drastically on that goal. Because guess what? 5 a.m. on a Saturday comes real quick, and the last thing I want to do is go help poor people when all I want to do is sleep. And if the Holy Spirit's not in my life, If God isn't transforming my heart to be more like his, then I have no real reason to get up. Sooner or later, the philanthropy, sooner or later, the excitement of helping those less fortunate will wear off, and my reasons for doing it will shine through. That's the wisdom of the Lord. The second thing is this. The story of Christmas is that Jesus Christ was born into the world, that the pre-existing Son of God was born to a virgin in this miraculous birth. 
crazy, right? I mean, you don't lead with the virgin birth when you're trying to convert a friend or a neighbor. Hey, come be a Christian. Why? Well, a virgin gave birth. Uh, We drink the blood and the body of our Savior every Sunday. It's fantastic. You don't lead with those things, do you? Like, you trip people out. They never want to see it. But yet it's there. We don't lead with the bodily resurrection all the time of God either. Wait, so like his spirit rose? No, his physical body. The one that was beaten and had a sword shoved through it and his back was whipped? Yep, that one. It rose again, totally healed. There's some things in Scripture which really make you pause and go, that's supernatural. And here's the problem with that. About 100 years ago, a massive division in American and European Christian institutions came in. And it was, this, it was the evolution, it was the wave of scientific experimentation. That everything in the world could be understood scientifically. That there was a scientific explanation for every phenomenon. Even the ones that we sort of attributed to spirits or the unknown. That the smarter we got, the better we got at testing, everything could be explained. Remember the X-Files? Yeah, there was one, uh, Mulder and Scully. Mulder believed in the supernatural. Scully always showed you at the end how there was always a scientific explanation for it. Except for when there wasn't. Let that mess with your minds. Aliens. So um, here we have the Bible that has all of this supernatural. And we have the Christian church saying, "Uh uh-oh, in this new enlightened day and age, we're not going to get the smart academic people if we continue to talk about all of this sort of miracles. So let's focus on the social justices of the Lord. Let's focus on the charitableness of the Lord. Let's focus on the ethical values of the Lord. The whole thou shalt not steal and all that stuff. We think that's great. But we need to sort of quiet down and calm down the miracle talk. We're going to scare people off. So let's downplay that. And so what happened is the universities and institutions ended up in a place where we began to water down and minimize publicly talking about the miracles of the scripture. That there was a pre-existing deity before the body of Christ, that Jesus was born of a virgin, that his body had a physical resurrection, the infallibility of an inspired scripture. That there needs to be a miraculous conversion in my spirit to accept the work of Christ on the cross. That it's not just a saying, that those beautiful children up here this morning will have to have a moment in their own life, no matter how much you as a parent pray for your child, they have to make that decision on their own. Isn't that scary? It's the most horrifying thing ever when you bring that life into this world. That at some point, they've got to decide for themselves if they'll choose to follow him or not. And so here we are with a very divided church at Christmas time about what, what it is we believe what it is we want to emphasize. So you have a lot of American churches choosing to uh, inspire you and leave you feeling good and happy like a Hallmark movie. And then you've got me, where I'd rather you leave feeling depressed and sad and inwardly looking at yourself and realizing you're scum. That's how I want you to leave LifePoint. (laughs) Isn't that special? No, I want you to leave with a deeper understanding of Scripture every single Sunday. Every single Sunday, you should be able to take whatever piece of Scripture we're studying and leave with a greater knowledge of it. And it should drive you to a deeper knowledge of the Lord because you understand a little more of Him. This brings us to our final point, the king's identity. Isaiah is going to give us the identity of the king, and this is quite possibly the coolest part of what we read this morning because I don't think most of you caught it. 
I certainly haven't caught it for most of my life reading it until I begin to really dive down into commentaries and sermons on this. But watch this. Verse 1. Verse 1 says, A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. Now, let's just be honest. We don't use this language anymore, right? Like, what does that mean? A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. Well, a shoot comes out of a stump or a branch of a tree. It means it's descended from something, right? So it means that Christ will descend from Jesse and from David, who's Jesse's son. It's saying that the Messianic king will come from that lineage. So we got that. So like Judah is my little shoot. See what I did there? Yeah, so that's scriptural, and I can use that, and you can use that in the future as well. Uh, He is my shoot, and I am the stump. Now watch this. This is going to trip you out. Verse 10. It doesn't just say Messiah is the shoot of Jesse, but then it says, In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a place and a banner for the peoples, and the nation will rally to him, and his resting place will be glorious. Wait, did Isaiah mean to say the shoot of Jesse again? What's he mean, the root? You see, the root can't come after the stump, because there can't be a stump unless there's roots. Which means Isaiah is going to close his thought as he's prophesying with the root of Jesse. What came before Jesse, what preexisted before Jesse, will come and will stand as a banner for the people. And so we get to see a miracle right here in this Old Testament prophecy. This is one of those things that there is no scientific explanation for a deity that preexisted before his creation. But Isaiah is prophesying, saying, the root, Jesus, who was there at the beginning, before Jesse and David, will come down in the form of a man and be the shoot of Jesse and David. What? Anybody else's mind just be like, how? How is that possible? How can he do that? What does it show me about him that he does that? That should be the question you ask. What about the character of God does this show me that I should learn something from him? And this is what it shows. We'll close right there with this. The miracle of Christmas is that there's two types of religion the world understands. They understand a religion of a wrathful God One who says, you follow the commandments or you burn in hell. You do what I say or you burn in hell. And they understand the religion of a God who accepts anything. Yeah, you don't have to do any of it. I was just kidding with my son Jesus. That was just part of a thing we were doing. You just do whatever you want. You're getting into heaven. We understand both of those. At one time in society, our culture was one where we all worshiped the wrathful God. We were happy when we were doing really good because compared to the people that weren't, we were going to heaven and they weren't, which is good because we didn't like them anyway. We like our wrathful God. We obey all of his commandments, and we are better than you because of it. That's what the Pharisees were, right? Now, we live in a culture that is totally in love with the acceptance God. God, you do what you want. God loves you. He's a God of love. He doesn't care. Pray to Muhammad. He likes the name Muhammad, too. Pray to Buddha. It doesn't matter. He doesn't care. It's all the same mountain. It's all the same path up to God. And that's our culture now. And the culture's accept those two prospects of religion. But here's the problem with those two views of religion is both of them are self-serving. Both of them are the most selfish views of religion you can have. You see, when I serve a wrathful God, I work hard not to do the things to tick the wrathful God off. 
When I serve an accepting God, I can do whatever I want and he still loves me and so I'm good. I can love what I want, do what I want, be who I want. I don't ever have to think of anyone else because he loves me. He's a God of love. Neither one of those views of religion look at God in a view of self-sacrifice. And our God is not gonna be put in the box of wrath or acceptance. His dimensions are so much deeper than that. What he wants us to know about him is so much deeper than that. And my hope this Christmas, as we head in this Advent season, is that this week, God will be drawing out of you a deeper understanding. Who is he? What does he want from you? What's he doing? What if he wants to tell you what he's doing in the world right now? What if he wants to share with you something that not anybody else is having shared with them and he just needs you to pay attention? That's how our God works. He constantly pursues us. He finds us. We don't have to find him. We don't have to hope we find him by being good enough or worshiping right. He finds us and opens our eyes. And I'm telling you this morning, when you understand that, Well, these words from this song, to see the law by Christ fulfilled and hear his pardoning voice transforms a slave into a child and a duty into a choice. Isn't that cool? The light pierces the darkness. The roots of the Lord are deep before David and Jesse, and yet he's the shoot from David and Jesse. He satisfied that prophecy. And this morning, we're going to celebrate him through communion. So we'll invite the ushers forward. And here at LifePoint, if you have a relationship with Christ, we invite you to partake of communion with us. If you don't, just let the bread and the cup pass by. The Bible says not to partake of it. If you haven't, don't understand it. If you want to know more about what it is, feel free at the end of service, walk back to our prayer room and say, why? What is communion? We'd love to talk with you about that. But there's two cups stacked on each other. Would you just take the two cups and hang on to them? We'll partake together. To see the love fulfilled by the law, we must understand the foolishness of God. The beautiful, amazing foolishness of his wisdom. And then submit ourselves to it. Say, Lord, I don't understand virgin birth. I don't understand bodily resurrection. I don't understand how you changed my heart from a slave to a child. But I want to understand. As we pass out the communion, I want to encourage you to take time to examine your own spirit. The Bible says we should not take communion with an unexamined heart. So take a moment, examine your heart, your motives. Just go before the Lord and say, whatever it is, he's speaking to you. This is your time between you and him. And in a moment, we'll partake together.
Isaiah 52, 13. Behold my servant. This is another prophecy of the Christ. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. Just as many were astonished at you, my people, so his appearance will be marred more than any other man. Isaiah is foretelling the crucifixion of Christ. He's foretelling the beatings and the lashings in a body which was shredded apart for us. His form will be worse than the sons of men. Thus he will sprinkle many nations and kings will shut their mouths on account of him. For what had not been told them they will see and what they had not heard they will understand. And that night Jesus took the bread and he fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. As he said, this is my body broken for you taste and see that the Lord is good. Who has believed our message? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty. He was before and he is after. And he said, this is my blood. Poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Father God. humble our hearts before you this morning. Gracious for what December 25th represents. That it represents the day you came and like a tender shoot, Lord, entered your creation. And although you are a God of justice, you pour out infinite mercy upon us. You tarry your coming, Lord, so that more of your children will know who you are, so that the knowledge will be full, the knowledge of the earth will be full of the Lord, and that you will trample evil and make it a footstool beneath your feet. Heavenly Father, may we see the kingdom of heaven on earth. May we serve others, and through our actions, Lord, not just our words, will people understand that there is a love deeper than human love. There is a God who created us, created us, destined us, and has an identity for us. It's in that name we pray this morning. In the name of Jesus, God's people said, amen. Sorry, it's pretty intense stuff. This week, I, my hope is that you would go out and allow your quiet time, allow your times of devotion to be filled with this thought. Lord, I am rich. I am rich not only because I know you and I'm your son or I'm your daughter, but because of where you have placed me in this life. Will you give me a heart to love those in need and those in poverty? Give me that heart, Lord, and see what he does. Amen.